So, hey, I'll just start over and say welcome again, and uh, grab your Bibles, and welcome to you uh, joining us from the Mission Campus as well. And we are going to read the text. We are in 1 Peter, you know this, and so we're into the next chunk, and so if you've got your Bibles, I always encourage you to turn in your own Bibles and read along, but we'll also put it on the screen. So the next chunk that we are in is chapter 2, verse 18 to 25, and it says, Servants... Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called... Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. So that's God's word that we're looking at tonight. I, I think I've shared the story with you before. A friend of mine who pastors on the prairies uh, shared the story a number of years ago. It's a large church in a small town. Uh, he had been there for over two decades. The church was growing and a lot of influence in the community, but they were well known because it was a small town and they grew larger and larger and larger. And so they began to have some issues with a few of their neighbors who didn't like this big church in their neighborhood and traffic issues and these kind of things. And then the day came when they realized they had to build a bigger building. Uh, to accommodate all the growth that God was sending their way. And so they start into the construction plan. And again, more and more traffic on and off the site and various people who were upset and those kind of things. And he gets a call from a local business leader, a guy who doesn't come to the church. And he says, I need to meet with you. And as he shares the story, he's like, it's going through his mind, okay, what's this going to be about? Is, is it more complaints about what the church is doing and the, the construction and the noise and all the traffic and all that? And so the guy comes in and sits down with him and he says, Pastor, you may or may not know this. You know my business. It's a small manufacturing business, uh, 70, 80 employees, and I've got 50, 60 guys who work on the floor in the plant. But what you may not know is that 17 of my men attend your church. And I need to let you know that these men in the last five to 10 years have radically changed the culture of my company. The language on the floor has changed in the last five to 10 years. The pornography in the lunchroom is down and gone off the walls. And frankly, the work ethic has improved. Sick days are fewer and far between and our productivity has gone up. And in fact, this last year we had our most productive year ever. And I credit a lot of that to the influence of these 17 men. And I need to tell you, Pastor, I don't know how you're training these people. I don't know if you teach them about business. But if you have any more like them, I'll take 100 more and hire them today. And I know you're in a building project, so I brought a little donation from our year-end profits because we've done so well this year and I know I don't attend your church, but I want to make a donation. And he slid an envelope across the desk. And the pastor said, I'm kind of gobstopped by the conversation. Thanks him and is a little humbled by the impact that men from his church are having in this company. And the guy leaves. And a little bit later, he opens the envelope. And it's $250,000. The impact of godly men in a workplace. And the next chunk of our study is intensely practical. 
Peter has reminded us of our call, and I'll put it up there one more time through the book just to remind you where we've gone, that we are called to be a rejoicing people, a holy people, a loving people, a representative people. And last weekend, we looked at that added phrase, an alien people, that we are sojourners, we're strangers. This place is not our ultimate home. But he reminds then, in answering the question in chapter 12, how then shall we live? And that was a hinge verse. The implications of all the theology that we've had in the first chapter and a half now lived out in the the rest of the book. And his answer, as he opens it, is quite honestly difficult because the first thing he says is, line yourself up under, submit yourself. Hupotasso, we said, is the Greek word. It's literally a military term that the underlings under their military commander would line up under that authority. And that submission is the hardest thing for the human creature. In fact, it led to the original sin in the garden. I think I know better. Did God really say? Did he really mean? Did he really intend this? I don't think so. I think my own rules would be better for my own life. And frankly, it's one reason why Christianity is offensive to so many people. It boils down to this issue. There is no way that I'm going to give up control over my life. Not even to God. So last week we talked about submission to governing authorities. Whether in a free democracy or as these people were under the benevolent dictatorship of the emperor Caesar... And in this next chunk, Peter dives into the most important relationships in our lives, our work and our family lives, our jobs and our marriages. So marriage next weekend and this weekend really our jobs. And the question might be asked of these people, these baby Christians, these elect exiles who are spread all over Asia Minor, how do you as a powerless, illegal sect on the margins of the Roman Empire begin to bring change and transformation to your culture? And Peter, in essence, says it starts close to home. It starts in your family, and it starts in your work. So let me just skip to the chase where we're headed with this. Let me ask you some questions. Let me ask you specifically, what kind of work ethic do you have, Christian? As a Christian, are you the kind of employee that every employer wants more of? Like those men in that little prairie town who are transforming their company from the inside out. Are you a hard worker? Do you give an honest day work for the wages that you receive? Are you the first to arrive and the last to leave? Or are you always cutting corners and maybe taking advantage? Are you a team player? Do the associates that you work with like having you around? Do you have a can-do, get-her-done attitude? Why did Willy Wonka close his chocolate factory? Do you remember? Do you remember? Because the employees were stealing his recipes. Did you know that in North America, retail theft is attributed 50% to the employees. In fact, one study says the average small retailer loses $1,400 a year per employee in retail theft. So employees steal stuff. Employees also steal time. Just, let me just illustrate it this way. If you just pad your lunch break with five extra minutes, What's five extra minutes? The boss is paying me. It doesn't matter. I can take five extra minutes. Well, over the course of a year, that's about 20 hours. 
And over the course of your working career, it's almost a thousand hours, just those five minutes. And even if you earn minimum wage in today's dollars, 15 bucks an hour, that's a $15,000 theft. Have you ever thought about it that way? So if you take nothing else with you this weekend, take this with you. Your work matters because it matters to God. Your work matters because it matters to God. Uh, maybe you have seen this poster. Uh, you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead? Well, just drop by my office at 4.45 on Friday. <laughs> so remind yourself, your work matters. It matters to God. Next to your family, it is your primary area of ministry and impact. Your family's number one, but your work life is number two. It's your greatest opportunity in the kingdom. Your greatest opportunity to witness up close and personal how God changes an individual life. And other than sleeping, you will spend more time at work than any other activity in your adult years. It's one of the spinoffs of the Protestant Reformation. Many of you know this. Uh, we call it the Protestant work ethic. It was a radical shift 500 years ago in how people viewed work because before the Reformation, there was this sense inside the church that it was only what the clergy did, what the priests, what the deacons, what the diaconate, those people did important work. They did spiritual work and everybody else was second. They were lower. They, uh, work was a necessary evil, but it wasn't holy. It wasn't God's work. And Martin Luther is famous for dismantling the so-called sacred and secular divide. And he insisted that the farmer who was shoveling manure and the milkmaid who was milking the cow were pleasing God just as much as the minister who was preaching or praying. And he went on to say this, that God answers the prayers of his children through his children. He says this, we pray for daily bread at night and bakers rise in the morning to bake it. The same holds for clothing. God gives the wool, but not without our labor. If it's on the sheep, it makes no garment. Humans must shear, card, and spin. And through our work, the naked are clothed, the hungry fed, the sick healed. Through our work, we please our maker and we love our neighbor. Your work matters. So there's two challenges in the text today. Do your work as a servant of the Lord. That's part one. And the second half is look to Jesus who became the ultimate servant who set us free. So the first one, we're going to look at that. Do your work as a servant. Now, verse 18 opens with that word servant. Some of your translations say slaves, and we need to stop right there. We need to understand, because you hear the word slave, if you're reading the NIV, and some warning signals go off in our modern minds. And we've got to understand slavery in the Greco-Roman world, in this context in the first century, is not the 19th century chattel slavery of the Deep South. You see, our modern ears and our modern readers see that word slave, and we can't get past the images in our mind of all the shows we've watched about African slave trade and the evil that fueled the European and North American economic advance on the backs of slaves. But we've got to note that slavery in the Roman Empire was not the same. You need to study it deeply. You need to understand it thoroughly. First of all, slavery or servitude, as it was called, was widespread through the Roman Empire. In fact, some estimates were that upwards of 50% of the Roman Empire were actually slaves. From 10 to 50%. Most historians will say at least 30 to 40%. So one out of three of your neighbors were slaves in the Roman Empire. Three primary areas. In the military, in hard manual labor in the fields and the mines, and then around the house. 
household duties of running these large estates. But it was not in that first century in the majority racially based chattel slavery and nor was it permanent. So we need to understand this. To be, now, be clear, some slaves did indeed endure a lifetime of harsh treatment. We wouldn't be honest if we didn't say that. But the majority in that time had the opportunity to better themselves. Slaves, servants in that era, in the Roman colonies, could get an education. In the trades, in the arts and sciences, even in medicine, law, or accounting. Servants were paid in the Roman Empire. They could own property. They could amass wealth, and ultimately they could purchase their freedom, and the vast majority did. They were only slaves a portion of their life. But, but let's be honest, they were still slaves, right? And he, the word he uses here for master in verse 18, submit to your master, uh, the Greek word is despotes, and you can hear the English word despot in that word despotes. So the master was not indeed a, a, a good person necessarily. Now that's a long sidebar on one little word. But it's necessary to understand this text. Because the closest application than we would have in our day would be the employer-employee relationship. And the thousands of hours that we put into the workforce every year to fuel the economy. And here Peter addresses the lowest workers in the economy. And he gives them three challenges. First, submit yourselves willingly. Line up under the authority of your master. Now, as we've already talked about, the ordered relationships in this flourishing society, because without order, uh, society spirals into chaos. So without rules and laws and policies and procedure, and as we talked last weekend, without governing authorities, life would be chaotic. So we submit ourselves, we subject ourselves. That's critical to know who he's talking to. And I'll just bump back up to a, a previous thought that these, these household servants, specifically he uses a phrase that points out a specific group of people. In fact, he uses a unique word. There, there is one word that is used most consistently in the New Testament for slaves and servants and bond servants. It's the word doulos. He doesn't use that word here. He uses a different word that is only used four times in the entire New Testament, and it always refers to household servants. There was so much manual labor around the house, childcare, cooking, cleaning, teaching, and, and training. And so more than the field hand and the soldier and the miner, the domestic, the household care was in close relationship with the master. So when you're thinking this and you're reading this, think more Downton Abbey than Kunta Kente and Roots. They were in relationship with the master. So he says, submit willingly. Secondly, he says, submit regardless of the master's attitude. You can't control the master, but you can control your response. So whether he is good and kind, or whether he's crooked and twisted, and I, I use it that way, crooked and twisted, because the Greek word is scolios. Do you hear scoliosis in that? The English word scoliosis comes from that scolios. You know what scoliosis is? It's when the, the back is twisted. There's a curvature. There's a, a misalignment. It's, it's twisted. It's crooked. He uses that word. So even if your boss is a crook, some of you go, I know that boy. In fact, the real test comes when the boss is unjust. Thirdly, and most importantly, 
We submit as a gospel strategy. So we read it earlier, so you can scan back through your verses there. In both verse 19 and in verse 20, you see this phrase, it is a gracious thing. The beginning of verse 19, the end of verse 20, it's a gracious thing. And the word is charis, literally it's grace. It could literally be translated, it is a grace thing. But gracious makes better sense or flow in our English language. But literally, it is a grace thing. So even if your master does not deserve your respect, you give him that respect as a gift. It is, it is a measure of the gospel. Grace means we get what we don't deserve, right? You remember what grace means? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That theological term grace literally means we get God's unmerited, unearned favor. That God pours out his love on us when we could not do enough, say enough, pray enough, give enough to earn, merit his love. He willingly gifts it to us. In fact, while we were his enemies, he gives us grace. Undeserved favor. And, and Peter here says, give grace. It's a gracious thing if you submit in this way. Now, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, rally all the other servants and form a union. Start a petition and go to court. And not that any of those things would have necessarily been wrong. We, we should say that. But he doesn't say that. Because Peter knows in that moment, in that time, in that place, in that first century, in the Greco-Worman world, on the minority edges, way out on the edges of the empire in Asia Minor, he knows if these slaves would revolt, it would be sure death for all of them. And so instead, he says, change the way you serve. And by changing your attitudes and your actions inch by inch, you will change the culture around you. And in fact, just after 300 AD, slavery was abolished in the Roman Empire. 300 years it took, but as more masters came to Christ, as more slaves came to Christ, and by 325 AD, they said 50% of the Roman Empire had embraced Christianity and slavery was officially abolished because of Christianity. In fact, that has been the story around the world. If you study slavery, it has been driven, the abolishment of it, by Christian voices. William Wilberforce in the Clapham sect in the UK, who took 20 years to get it through the British Parliament to abolish the slave trade. In the US, it was Christian voices, and, and largely Christian voices who ushered Abraham Lincoln into the presidency, and ultimately that civil war. But abolishment of slavery was led by Christians who said, this is wrong, we've got to get rid of it. Now, interesting, and you might have noted already, especially if you're an employee and not a boss, that Peter says nothing to the master. You're like, dang, why doesn't he talk to my boss? Well, there are other texts that do. But nor did he say anything to the government last week. He didn't talk to the governing authorities. He talked rather to the subject of the kingdom. And here he speaks to the people who might be considered oppressed and powerless. And in essence, he says to them, you want to change the world? You can change the world from the bottom up. So friends, I don't know what y'all do for a living. But what I want to tell you is your work matters because it matters to God. And if you're a milkmaid milking the cow or your farmer shoveling the manure... Your work matters just as much as the preacher who preaches a sermon and prays a prayer in the eyes of God. Amen? But there are two servants in our text. There's the household servant, and then there is the suffering servant in the second half. 
And so our second challenge is to look to Jesus who became the ultimate service to set us free. Now already in verse 19 and 20, we have gotten the nudge, get your eyes on the king. Uh, Coupled with that phrase, it is a grace thing, verse 19 and 20, you'll see two phrases, mindful of God and in the sight of God. It's a grace thing, that mindful of God and in the sight of God. So you turn that phrase both ways, eyes up. The phrase mindful of God is like the conscience is stirred. I have metaphorically turned my eyes toward the Lord. And the other is in the sight of God, that the providential sovereign eyes of God are looking down. And so the servant's eyes look up, mindful of God, and in the sight of God, God looks down. And you have this metaphor of him looking at me and me looking at him. And so being mindful of God in all these things. But now in verse 21, he gets very direct. When he says to them, you were called to this. Because you've been called to Christ, you are called, as we said earlier, to rejoice, to live holy lives, to be loving, to be a representative, and to be an alien people. And now he specifically adds, and we could add to our list, you are called to suffer with and for Christ. Wow, don't like it. But truthfully in the West, we've not had to bear up under much that you call persecution. We haven't really had that much injustice to date. And sometimes when I hear Christians talking about the persecution that they're suffering under, I think it's not persecution, it's just inconvenience. It's no different than people around you, Christian or non-Christian, are experiencing as well. I remember years ago at a ministerial meeting, a pastor asked for prayer from the other people in the room, and he said, you know what, our church is really going through it. We're, we're under a spiritual battle, and we're experiencing persecution like, wow, that's interesting. Uh, Ministering in the same town, we weren't experiencing the same thing. But as he went on to tell the story, the persecution was this. They had bought a chunk of real estate along a provincial highway, and they were building a new building. And he wanted a driveway to dump onto the provincial highway, and the highways department of British Columbia said, no, you can't put a driveway onto the highway. Like everybody else, you got to access through the side roads or the back roads. No, you can't have a driveway onto the highway. He said that was religious persecution. And I thought, it's just BC law. So be careful. Everything that you call persecution may not be persecution. But Peter says here, look to the one who most certainly was persecuted. Look to Jesus. He was abused and he was rejected. And Peter, this is interesting, more than any other New Testament author in this little chunk of Scripture quotes more from Isaiah 53 than anywhere else in the New Testament. Now, many of you are familiar with Isaiah 53, and when I start reading it, you'll go, "Uh uh-huh, I've heard that before. But Isaiah 53, and I'm going to just pull out some chunks of it. It's a long section, but here is a bit of it. Isaiah 53 says this, He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep that's before its shearers silent, 
so he opened not his mouth. Now remind yourself back in chapter 1, verse 10 to 12, if you've forgotten, the Old Testament prophets that said wondered about who were we writing about. When Isaiah wrote those words, he didn't know specifically who this suffering servant was. All he knew was that the Holy Spirit had prompted him to write these words about one who would one day come. In the future, there would be this servant who would suffer, and he would bear the iniquities for his people. And, he, and it says that literally the prophets studied one another's writings, trying to figure these things out. But from our vantage point, we know that the New Testament makes it perfectly clear and Peter, specifically in this text, makes it clear that Jesus Christ is indeed the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Now, interesting. Do you remember conversation Peter had with Jesus 30 years prior? Because Peter was the one who argued with Jesus about this. So go back to Matthew 16, and it says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day, raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter's rebuking Jesus. Like, think that one through. Far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So 30 years earlier, Peter could not wrap his head around the fact that suffering was the path to life. That in dying, we are set free. That in humility, we find strength. But here, now, he finally and fully understands, and he goes, look to the suffering servant. And he gives us two truths to take note of. Number one, he set us an example. He suffered as an example to us when we suffer. That Jesus left us a pattern to follow when we are unjustly treated. How you suffer as a Christian matters. And it does not mean that we never stand up against injustice. It does not mean that we don't change unjust laws and practices and do all we can. It does not mean that we do not advocate for the oppressed and for those who have no voice. And in fact, you should all know by now that this Friday was an historic day in North America. After decades of voices standing up for the oppressed, standing up for those who have no voice, the unborn child, the Supreme Court of the United States banished a law that for 50 years has made it legal to kill unborn children, Hallelujah. led by Christians largely. And now as we look at the days ahead, we wonder, state by state by state, all 50 of them are now going to have to process this on their own. And will they stand on the side of life? And will they protect the unborn child or will they stand on the side of choice that a woman should be able to kill the infant in her womb? So of course we are involved. Of course we speak. Of course we pray. Of course we advocate. But the tone and the question is this. And already the abuse has started. I don't know if you've been watching on Twitter and on the news and all this stuff, but it was interesting listening to Elizabeth Warren saying, I am spitting mad that they are forcing their religion on us. And I'm like, yep, so it begins. 
But the question is, what attitudes and words will we use? Because what Peter says here is, even when you are unjustly maligned and slandered, when you are set aside, when you're bullied, when you're ridiculed, do you respond in kind? Do you join in the outrage of our culture? Or do you, with gentleness and respect, simply voice your opinion? And in some cases, do you choose to remain silent? It's interesting, not maybe as many of you saw this, but on June 6th, five Tampa Bay players made the headlines. Anybody see that one? They took some heat in the media because they made a decision to not wear a rainbow logo on their jerseys to celebrate Pride Month. And they took a beating in the media. But as far as I can see from following their stories and following the coverage on it, all five of them have responded with incredible grace. So the question for us is, as verse 19 and 20 say, are we going to act as agents of grace? It is a grace thing to suffer like Jesus suffered. But note that Jesus' suffering was far more than just to leave us an example. Some Christians stop there and they say Jesus was just a guy that we want to follow. He left us a good example, but it's far more than that. Because the second truth is this, he suffered in our place to bring us to God, and we dare not miss this. There was a reason Jesus Christ suffered, not just to leave us an example, which was true. And Peter goes to the very core of the Christian faith in this, that God has made a way for us to be right with him through a very scandalous means. The scandal of the cross that God would allow a substitute to take the penalty for a guilty party. That God would say, I can set the guilty one free if a substitute will step in and pay the penalty on the behalf of that guilty one. So the book of Romans, Paul said, we have all sinned. Sorry to let you know that, but all of us in the room come under that. All means all, it just means all, that's all, all means. All have sinned. And a couple chapters later, he says, and the wages of sin is death, which refers to spiritual separation from God for all eternity. So God, because he is holy and because he is just, must demand a penalty for sin. It must be paid. And we have two choices. We can pay it ourselves by being eternally separated from God. Or, we can allow someone else to do it for us. And the question, of course, is, but who would do such a thing? Who would take responsibility for something that wasn't their fault? And, of course, the New Testament is crystal clear that there is one. Hallelujah. There is one who way in eternity past, in fact, we're told before the foundation of the world, looked down the corridors of time to see that we couldn't save ourselves and made a plan with God the Father to line himself up under the authority of the Father and to lay aside his glory and take on human flesh and to humble himself. And not just to come to humanity as one of the highest among humanity, not with pomp and circumstance as a, a world ruler, a dictator, or a king, but rather to come humbly as a servant, born to poor parents in a backwater village in a stable that smelled of manure, 
and then to live the perfect life that you and I could not live and to die the death that you and I deserve to die and then to rise in victory over the grave, his life vindicated and our lives redeemed. That's the story of the gospel. Uh, One commentator says that there are over 50 distinct reasons given in the New Testament for why Jesus died. Over 50 distinct passages that say he died for this reason. Four of them are here in the book of 1 Peter. So back in chapter 1, verse 18, we are told that we're ransomed from the futility of our family tree. Does that not make you happy? The craziness in your family tree. You have been rescued from it. That God steps into families, and whether they are animistic who worship their ancestors or whether they're completely atheistically and secular, that God steps into a family tree and he plucks people out and he saves us from the futility of our ancestors before us. In chapter 3, verse 18, which we'll get to in a few weeks, it says specifically, he died to bring us to God. And then in our text are the last two, verse 19 and 20, he suffered to give us an example, which we've talked about. When we are suffering, we can look to Jesus and how he suffered, we should emulate it. And secondly, he died, verse 24 says, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. In other words, he died to give us the power to live these kind of lives. So, servants, Christians, workers in this room, Peter writes to these on the fringes, the margins, the weak, the powerless, the oppressed in the first century Greco-Roman world, and he says in essence to them, I know you suffer at times, but be strong because you're in good company. Jesus walked this path before us. In fact, he is walking it with us still because he walks with us. And there's no way that we can live these kind of lives in our own strength. And it's why it is so critical that we have died. That we have died to self, we have died to pride, we have died to our own attempts to prove ourselves to God. But alive in Christ, we let him live his life through us. So, okay, got to land the plane, leave you with one simple thought. I want to leave you with one implication of the gospel. This is not the gospel itself. This is not the verbal proclamation of all that we've talked about earlier, but it is indeed an implication of that gospel life. And here is the implication, and here is your question. What kind of worker are you? It's an implication of the gospel. Are you the kind of worker that every employee would want a hundred more like? Do you see those little widgets that you're making as part of glorifying God by producing something of usefulness and beauty and design and importance to someone in the world, or are you just putting in time? Because I think we grossly underestimate the power to change the world one day at a time. I think we grossly underestimate The power of a gospel-saturated life lived out faithfully over the 27, 24 sevens of our life, over a 45-year work life, or how many ever years you work. That as you get out of bed and head off to work, you intentionally go there as a rejoicing, holy, loving, representative, alien person. I'm on work for the King of Kings. And you willingly line yourself up under the authority of your employer to the glory of God. 
because you know in your heart of hearts that you're not actually working for that earthly employer at all. You're working for the glory of God and for the joy of humankind. And if you suffer, and when you suffer, eyes on Jesus. Eyes on Jesus who suffered for us and who suffers with us now. So the question is this, do you want to change the world? What if we decided to change the world one shift at a time? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. So Lord, I pray for these men and women, these boys and girls. And I know the majority of them are in the workforce right now. Some of the younger ones will be soon. And some of the olders may have stepped back from full-time employment and yet still have the engagement with colleagues and associates of those previous years. All of us have the opportunity for thousands of hours of our adult life to be placed into intimate relationships side by side with men and women who need to see the glory of the gospel displayed. And so, Lord, I pray for the workforce standing in front of me and for those joining us at the other campuses. Lord, you know the various employers where these people work. You know those who just love going to work, love their jobs, love their employers, and you know those who right now say it is a harsh environment. I've got a lot of criticism and a lot of struggle in my workplace. So, Lord, for either of those stories, I pray that you would buoy us up by your spirit, that you would remind us, eyes on Jesus, it's a grace thing. It's a gracious thing that we give respect and honor and we submit and we line ourselves up under. And Lord, that in the midst, even for those who suffer, that today you would give them hope that you suffer with them. That you walked ahead of us, you will carry us, you will give us the strength, that you died to bring us to God and that we might live righteous lives. And so Lord, may that be true for each one of us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.